to Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swithin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're just joined by Terminal Philosophy to discuss modern intellectual taboos. So, uh, Terminal Philosophy, you were talking uh, with uh, with me and others in uh, private, and you were you were very um, animated about the modern intellectual taboos uh, that are currently there. Uh, so my first question uh, for you uh, is, uh, why are taboos important? And is contemporary society, does it have more taboos than the ones have had historically? And you know, how, how, how do you see that sort of dynamic? Uh, well, first of all, thank you both for having me here. I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, to the, to the heart of your question, uh, why are taboos important? Well, taboos are interesting because... If taboos are strong enough in any given society and uh, these taboos have important implications in either politics or society or uh, social movements or just – or even in the, the lives of regular people, if taboos are strong enough and it becomes more and more difficult to discuss things – well, then what you end up doing, of course, I think most people know where I'm going with this, is that you end up sort of uh, creating separate pockets or really separate sort of echo chambers in throughout society where it's safe to talk about this topic or that topic here, but in wider society it's not. And so broader society isn't able to engage with this subject, any, any subject in particular – and uh, you can – and regular people who may not be interested in higher education or more intellectual topics, well, they may develop their own uh, opinions on things. And then, the, of course, the elites of society will um, maintain their own opinion about it. And so you have these very differing uh, bifurcating views between elites, regular people, uh, perhaps the upper middle class will be somewhere in between that. And so it, it's important to discuss – Sorry, let me rephrase that. Uh, taboos are simply important because, um, if strong enough, they can uh, they can lead down a unfortunate path of uh, anti-intellectual uh, curiosity, and that creates a lot of problems. And um, I think we would all agree here that there's quite a number of taboo subjects in the United States and Great Britain and Europe and elsewhere. I think there's actually you know juicy taboo subjects in almost any society that I can think of. But um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll leave my first answer at that. Do you think uh, modern uh, US or British society has kind of got more taboos uh, than it had his, uh, in, say, the past, say, 100 years? Uh, and have they, so is it, are they kind of, are the taboos more taboo, as it were? Is, would you say that there is greater social sanction uh, for uh, discussing verboten topics than there than there was uh, in the relative recent past. Yeah, that is a uh, that's a great question. Um, I would have to say that first of all, you know, in the past you've got, uh, you know, perhaps by around 1900, you know, uh, I think societal norms were more strictly enforced. I think that that's uh, widely agreed upon. And the taboos that sort of are probably – that were accompanying, accompanying those uh, norms were probably more strictly enforced um, as well. I think um, there are probably more taboos numerically speaking, and while I won't uh, exaggerate the situation, uh, or at least I won't attempt to exaggerate the situation with uh, taboos being harshly enforced, but what you have now is that – you have sort of this um, continuously consolidating enforcement um, of the, uh, you know, of companies in Silicon Valley, and as well as the government and other institutions like the media and academia in the United States. That while they can't necessarily enforce things, they can't make certain uh, discussion or refutation of certain taboos illegal by law, they can certainly make it a hot topic, uh, so to speak, in the sense that if you discuss it, you're not in the, you're not in the in crowd, you're not in the, the enlightened 
modern person's crowd. You're part of the uh, you're part of some type of modern day freak show, so to speak. So while I think it's probably easier on the ground to hold certain taboos, um, if those are expressed in a certain way, then uh, you have you know you can potentially lose your job. You can potentially, uh, you know, I guess it depends on the country, but you can end up paying government fines. And, uh, you know, if you're in a, this is a bit of more of an extreme example, but if you're breaking taboos in a place like North Korea, well, that includes an entirely different set of, uh, of uh, consequences. So, yes, I'll, I'll say for now, and, you know, there's, I suppose there's plenty of room for disagreement and, and good examples to the contrary, but I'll just say that it's probably easier to have taboos in the modern day, but uh, you are incentivized to just simply kind of go along with the mainstream flow and not, uh, and not rock the boat, uh, as it were. As far as arguments in favor of taboos are concerned, one of the reasons some things are taboo, uh, this is sort of piggybacking on, off of Swithin's question, was that taboos are sometimes taboo for a reason. Um, they're hot topics, and uh, you don't really want it, – it's not, it's not pertinent to discuss that. I mean, the United States, United States and Britain's – I mean, you get some Peter Hitchens. It's sort of the United States and Britain's founding myth might be World War One or World War II. Like, I mean, that's how origins of NATO, for example. So, like, you know, you don't want to peek in too much to the sort of weird intricacies of the 1930s, for example. Um, and this might bring up one of our other topics. So there's certain topics that are taboo, I'd argue – for a reason, and that um, they somewhat undermine this societal order. I mean, of course, famously, Socrates sort of, you know, was attacked and, uh, and poisoned for the very reason for attacking taboos. And this sort of goes into, you know, I've seen you with Keith Preston, who's somewhat famous anarchist in some ways. Intellectually, I think he's great. Uh, you know, isn't it true that a ruling class sort of has to have taboos um, to, protect, to protect themselves or their origin stories, TP? Uh, yes, I think you've got a great point there. I mean, taboos can certainly be good, and you know, uh, given the whatever taboo is in question, uh, you know, I would assume that you know, just from a a bird's eye view of any civilization or society, the reason why taboos exist is because uh, they help enforce some sort of political and social reality. And so, uh, well, yes, of course, theoretically on paper, that is certainly a good thing, and. Um, you know these. Uh, you know most modern people are looking at uh, entities like the European Union or NATO, or these sort of more, uh, you could say, peace and productivity oriented uh, phenomenon as uh, phenomena as a good thing. You know, I mean, how, you know, you why why you know for, for example, someone might say, well, how could you be against the European Union? This is a this is a safeguard against something like uh, a World War II, or you know, how could you be against this sort of uh, you know uh, various trade agreements? You know, these are these are meant to bolster multiple economies at once, and um, you know, and, and you know, why are you antagonizing uh, you know a potentially bad thing to happen? So, so yes, I think uh, certain taboos, uh, you know, it, it's certainly okay, you know, and of course there are. Um, there are there are taboos around you know for example like the age of consent and uh, and all sorts of things so um, you know I would never be one to just come out and say you know well you know let's have this sort of uh, anarchic uh, like uh, state of the way we perceive uh, taboos and and all taboos are just you know the way for the man to keep regular people down certainly not no I mean you know taboos of course with like the age of consent. Uh, eventually translate into things like laws. So, of course, there are good things. Um, I would argue, though, uh, maybe between both of uh, the, the first answer I gave to, you know, why taboos can be a bad thing and why taboos can be a good thing is that there seems to be a sort of middle ground or kind of a no man's land. Maybe that's not the best way to describe it, but sort of a, a gray area between the black and white where there are certain subjects that are considered taboo, but you don't necessarily have to have your life ruined for discussing them, but it's still suggested that you just simply not question it. You go along with the sort of uh, the modern-day order, and uh, and <clears throat> I think we have a few subjects for those, but, uh, but just to your point, uh, yeah, taboos can certainly be a good thing. They do help enforce order and sort of a uh, – uh, um, 
a homogeneous society, if that's you know one's goal for sure, that that can help enforce those certain things. It can help. Uh, it can help. Um, I, I would say just uh, you know help certain societal identities persist uh, given all the fast changes of the modern world. So um, yeah, I would I would also agree that uh, taboos can be a good thing as well. I would agree that, yeah, t- t- taboos are are necessary in a sense. They're sort of an outflow of um, society's moral uh, structure, really, and the, the moral beliefs that the society holds. And that's not true. Uh, what seems to me to be the case now, my history may be off here, is that if you go from early the early 20th century, there seems to be more sort of social taboos, as in uh, taboos regarding correct conduct. Um, but there seems to be, to some extent, less intellectual taboos insofar as um, now at least the, my understanding, you know, you had all these sort of sciences, scientists in the late 19th, early 20th century. who could basically basically discuss whatever they seemed they wanted to. Obviously, it was pushback, but there wasn't um, uh, there didn't seem to be, at least from what I, I know, uh, a large sort of swathe of people trying to completely get rid of them and remove them, as it were, from from uh, polite society, you know, um, although I suppose that you could argue to some extent a product of the lack of sort of mass democracy because it didn't really matter because the plebs wouldn't be negatively influenced by it because they wouldn't have the, the access to it. But so what seems to happen in the 20th century, especially since the 1990s, at least the uh, range of acceptable discussed topics. I mean, these are discussed in polite society, not even like you're saying um, if that's a certain view on this is correct or otherwise, but actually even having um, the discussion is just um, just sort of verboten it, it is bizarre. I mean, an example of this was uh, a guy I know uh, posted uh, a link to the an article claiming that um, oh the coronavirus could have come out of a lab leak in China, and someone commented like, "Why are you posting this? This is just going to inflame um, like." Um, hatred of uh, the um, the Asian the East Asian community and it's like well, he's just asking whether it came out of it and there seems to be so many more sort of moral things attached to just uh, discussing what you know what is actually true in a certain sense uh, it, just like historically I mean it doesn't sort of say anything particularly about a group or society as a whole but was it a lab leak or was it bat soup you know uh, what was it um so th- that's my sort of my my general sort of feeling on this so to the uh some particular taboos tp that um you think are certainly in society and this nicely relates to coronavirus to, to a large extent is uh scientism so uh tp what do you mean by scientism and how is it sort of uh come to sort of hold such a great uh status in society such that it to uh, be against scientism is somehow verboten and uh, deviant. Right. Well, uh, yeah, scientism is certainly a, uh, I think, a good centerpiece or at least a very, uh, I would say, uh, a very self-evident uh, taboo subject uh, at present. Um, basically, scientism, as I understand it and as it's, uh, as I have observed it, is is that as long as something whether it be an article, a study, a TV show, a quick 30-second now this video on social media, if something claims to be scientific, well, then it must be true, and it would be, you know, it, it shouldn't be criticized, or you, you should uh, you should just uh, trust it um, just because it, it has the label of science behind it. Now, I've seen everything uh, from Vox and BuzzFeed and Jezebel, uh, Rick and Morty, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye, the science guy, Netflix and many other uh, institutions and people um, uh, engage in different uh, softer or harder versions of scientism. And um, with scientism, again, as you said before with, uh, you know, where you were – a part of a uh, social media conversation where a gentleman was just expressing some uh, 
just some thoughts as to whether or not the coronavirus came out of a lab. Was it, you know, was it some sinister Chinese plot to test uh, some sort of bioweapon or did it come from a uh, did it come from bat soup, so on and so forth? Well, or, you know, again, if you're questioning certain scientific data that's presented in a certain way that appears to be political in nature. Well, if you're questioning that, then many people will believe that you know you must have some sort of religious agenda or you must have some sort of sinister political or social intention with that like you're trying to sneak in you're trying to trojan horse some sort of uh indirect uh, nefarious uh, line of questioning to make people think a certain way and you know for most people that's not the case i mean you could even take an issue like uh you know the 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 wage gap of women or the apparent wage gap of women um, in the United States and Great Britain or in other various places in Europe. Um, I'm of the belief that that's mostly been a fairly well debunked uh, topic. But again, uh, simply questioning that means that you're some you know dyed in the wool misogynist. It's just that no, I mean when you really look into the data, it's just that women work fewer full-time jobs than men and. Many women end up bearing children, and they just simply can't work a full-time job as often as men. It doesn't mean that men are better than women, you know, in any objective or even a subjective sense. It's just that, uh, you know, when when some, you know, potentially condescending or vacuous ladies, you know, shrieking about, uh, you know, how the wage gap is very real and you need to be quiet about it, you know, perhaps one of the things you might say is that, well, you know, you have some you have some sort of nefarious agenda, like, you know, you're up to no good. And so that is probably, I, I think that statement right there basically underpins a lot of the conversations around most, I would say, political or social taboos um, in the modern day. Now, of course, that's still issue specific, but um, yeah, I, again, with scientism, uh, it, it's supported by so many different uh, angles within society. I mean, for example, this is uh, something that's uh, now academia. I was about to say academia outright, but academia is actually one of the better um, one of the better uh, institutions or entities within society who is able to sort of self-reflect on this because you can find many uh, lectures um, by philosophers or philosophers of science that are able to identify scientism quite well. Now, for example, it's difficult to locate the uh, where metaphysics goes into cosmology and vice versa and where the role of science, the, what you know, how science is played in, in various uh, uh, cosmological or physics uh, type of subjects, but the at least academia has some good experts in philosophy of science. You know, David Chalmers is a good one, and uh, there is a British female professor whose name I'll I'll find it here in just a moment. But there are many good lectures on basically the criteria of scientism and how to locate it. But it's just the preference of science before anything else. That you know, science you know is the only game in town for locating significance or finding truth. Um, and scientism has sort of a way of eliminating sort of the more beautifully mysterious aspects of both the the arts, the human the arts, the humanities, and and the hard sciences in itself. It has a way. There's almost like a, I wouldn't say this for every proponent of scientism, but there is almost an underlying uh, lowest common denominator preference for some type of nihilism in scientism. It's like a uh, it's almost like, a, as might not be the most best way to describe this, but a type of like evangelical atheism that goes along with scientism. And uh, you know, in, in addition, with many people who support uh, or kind of give scientism a free pass in academia, although that's kind of a half and half type of a thing, you've got very um, you've got very well funded uh, journalistic and institutions like Vox and BuzzFeed that, you know, or now this, where there will be a quick 30-second video on how, you know, apparently, you know, um, 
<laughs> like uh, like bad bad groups, uh, quote unquote, are you know are supporting this this or uh, this politician or that this bad idea, and it's supported by science that this is a bad idea, you know, and and you know we don't get a you don't really get a source, you don't really get to divulge into this information. It's just like well, it's it's scientific, so just you just better go along with it, or you're some you're some backwards uh, person from the Middle Ages or something like that. And then sorry, I'll wrap this point up, but last of but not least, you have um, prominent individuals like Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Of course, uh, most people from our generation, I mean, I'm, I'm 30, so it's common for my generation to have grown up watching Bill Nye the Science Guy, where, you know, basic scientific principles and theories uh, can be explained, sort of a, just a kind of a, it's just a fun kid show. Um, but now in the, uh, you know, in the 2010s and 2020s, I mean, Bill Nye is almost taking this uh, new image where he's like he, he's some angry, condescending, uh, pretentious um, enforcer of science, and you know, and he's and he has all these like YouTube videos, and he has his new show, of course, where you know he's like dropping the f bomb, and you know, like well, if you question any of this, you know, you're just some like bumbling. Uh, George Bush era, you know, idiot neocon, and uh, you know, and just and just just agree with it and shut up, type of a thing. And then the last guy, I we can talk about him more if you'd like, but the last guy is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who most people don't know this, but Neil deGrasse Tyson has ended up being caught uh, stealing jokes and fabricating um, and lying about educational statistics and scientific statistics. But you know, again, he. Neil deGrasse Tyson is every like atheist girl's, you know, purple-haired girl's like wet dream because you know he's black. He is, you know, continuing the great tradition of Carl Sagan of, uh, you know, exploring the cosmos and exploring the cosmos is purely the. It, it can only be the social territory of atheist, uh, uh, skeptical atheists and uh, and leftist intellectuals and you know and anyone you know you can't like how can you. How could you dare, you know, question Neil deGrasse Tyson? And because you know he's just like this perfect image of someone to continue the uh, the preference for science in a lot of these like popular social spheres. So, sorry for the uh, filibuster, but uh, there there I think there's a proper introduction to scientism. Yeah, I, as, as far as scientism is concerned, I would say scientism is the primary religion of our society. I mean, if you want to take an anthropological view of it. And you go to an island and ask, you know, what god do you worship? I would say scientism is the god that Western Europe, United States, for the most part worships. Um, as far as Bill Nye and Tyson are concerned, I, I would totally agree. Um, they're, they've become – they're somewhat unwatchable in certain ways. Um, um, although although Ty, Tyson was on the Joe Rogan experience, and he, he's not as bad. He's not as bad. I think, I think a slight demarcation between the two – is, is required. But I, as far as I'm a similar age, I grew up in public schools, middle school, and they would watch one, they would watch, uh, you know, that would be part of the curriculum watching um, his show. Disney Disney also has a lot of, of ties to it. I think two rides have him as a, as a promoter, um, as a, you know, as a narrator, so to speak, or presenter. Um, so yeah, corporate America likes Bill Nye, public schools like Bill Nye, um, he is kind of like a priestly uh, person in that regard. And it's interesting. Bill Nye is just a mechanical engineer. Um, that's that's one funny thing to bring up. Um, so when you know Bill Nye is not an epidemiologist. Bill Nye is not a astrophysicist. Bill Nye is not a statistician. Um, you know, so like if, if you're going for specialized credentials, he doesn't have them. Um, I mean, in that regard, we we probably have about the same amount of education as Bill Nye. Um, 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 so yeah, so yeah, yeah, I would argue that they're they're like sort of like you know ordained priestly class from an anthropological viewpoint. As far as the as far as the, the nihilistic point, I would also totally agree, which reminds me of a great quote from G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy. Um, you know, this is I love this quote. As as a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher, that all of life is waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. Um, so a, a man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes on to a science meeting where, where he proves that they practically are beasts. 
So yeah, I, I would argue this sort of, uh, I love that quote from Chesterton. I, I would argue that there is a kind of scientism is their primary religion. Um, and as far as religion is concerned, it's a very unsatisfying one uh, uh, because true science is, uh, it includes a lot of uncertainty. Um, it, it, lots of uncertainty. We don't know all sorts of things. We take sort of a Socratic approach. Um, it's a kind of open approach. It's a very dangerous approach too. Uh, you know, as I brought up Socrates before, Socrates ended up dead. I mean, for for questioning taboos. Um, so I would. So yeah, Tyson, in particularly Bill Nye, are taboo for, in enforcers. But I'll stop here and pass it back to Swithin. Um, Swithin. Or if you no, want to I, 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 I think I think that's interesting um, with the uh, modern intellectuals who are tr- claim to be sort of um, nihilists at the same time, if anything goes against um, a proper protocol, as you should do uh, cont- uh, investigation, investigation scientifically or in philosophy, then they all go really angry. I remember um, who was it? Steve Patterson uh, angered Jason Brennan. Um, I think for two two reasons. One, that he did a philosophy book but didn't reference anybody, and this was somehow a great sin. Um, now, I don't think Brennan is an amoralist, but it's like, so what? Like, so what if he didn't reference everybody, anybody? Like, oh, we're supposed to follow the academic rules, and so, uh, but then somehow, even the, we're going to follow the academic rules, but then within the academic rules, you can say nothing really exists or there is no truth, but then you just don't reference because it was just based on philosophical arguments, like what? And then I think somebody else complained, oh, it was completely unethical that you could pay someone to review a book. And it's like, well, I can understand why you might not want to, but this is some, some great sin from uh, a, a sort of group of people who would, perf- would entertain sort of the relative merits of amoralism, which, which, which seems uh, somewhat uh, bizarre. Um, with uh, scientism, I think uh, one of the reasons uh, it's become so kind of popular is um, the natural scientists have yielded great, uh, have sort of aided a great increase in material well-being and sort of um, increasing life expectancy and quality of life in a physical sense. And so lots of um, lots of cachet is, is placed in it. And so then it becomes scientific. Um but as you both of you point out, it is odd because what seems to be held up as sacrosanct in today's society is the fact value dichotomy. It's like, well, you know, just because something is this way, it doesn't mean they ought to be this way. Uh, so that exists at the same time of people going with lockdown. It's like we must follow the science. It's like the science doesn't actually tell us very much. It will tell us, OK, it assuming it's correct. What will happen if I do X? But it doesn't tell us whether we should do it or not. And um, so on the one hand, Scientism is held in great um, regard because of the great material advances it's brought. But then it's also used basically as a complete smokescreen to do whatever you actually want to and just claim that um, this is scientific. Uh, That's my sort of um, general view on uh, scientism. Uh, TP, got any other final uh, thoughts on um, uh, scientism? Yeah, some interesting comments from both of you guys. You know, uh, that was a really cool quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton, by the way. Um, you know, yeah, just by and large, looking at this topic, it's um, what I'm what I've kind of got at here is that it's the scientific. Uh, well, I should say, science doesn't tell us much about how to interface scientific findings or conclusions with um, with society it's really difficult to uh, you know to then sort of discover something new about uh, something within the hard sciences and then how that should be reflected within broader society I'm not saying it's not possible of course it's just that um, it's really it's it, you know science has a difficult time explaining to us uh, you know why we should do X or or how we should go about uh, you know, um, something that's uh, purely in the social spheres. And, and again, not saying it's not possible, but, uh, you know, with the with the scientism community and sort of the uh, the Neil deGrasse Tyson Templar order and uh, and the Bill Nye fan club, you know, it seems like we're being sold the idea that science is for um, skeptical atheists and 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 left wing uh 
social projects only and you know you've just got to go along with us and and if you don't well then we'll we'll do everything we can to you know make you be perceived as this uh this backwards person and so um but yeah you know again it, you know even even a lot of you know so-called hardcore christians aren't anti-scientific it's just that Science has been guilty of going beyond – of trespassing on other properties of uh, – on other territories of, of the humanities and even on itself about how far its claims can really reach within uh, epistemological issues. So – but yeah, scientism is certainly the modern-day religion, and um, you know it's, uh, it's going to be here to stay for a while, but uh, – uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's probably a decent uh, closing comment on scientism. Talking about religion, another topic we had was the Crusades. Um, what is taboo in your view uh, about the Crusades, and um, what does this tell us about society that um, discussing uh, what was the genuine cause of the Crusades? Uh, what why is that taboo, and what does it tell us about society? Right. Well, you know, I think. Uh, Perhaps all of us here have either witnessed a conversation or have been a part of a conversation where there is some discussion of the historical legacy of Christianity and whether or not Christianity has brought only good or only bad or some good and some bad to people throughout the world uh, in history. And so one of the most popular things to bring up, um, especially from, from those who have an anti-Christian stance, is that of the Crusades. Now, the reason why the Crusades are deployed in, you know, rather either, you know, either debates or even conversations with people who have an anti-Christian preference um, in their historical view is that the Crusades, to a lot of people, and this also overlaps with the scientism crowd a bit, I would say, is that the Crusades are perceived as this. Um, this purely negative thing that was orchestrated only by the Catholic Church. It was done for only nefarious um, reasons, and it was just uh, purely blood-soaked. It's, it's a one-sided issue. The Catholic Church was out for blood. They were out to uh, kill as many Muslims as possible, and um, it was just – it was basically this uh, – just this way to bring bloodshed to the Eastern Mediterranean and to expand the Christian sphere of influence in the Middle East. Now, actually, you know, for for those of us who are, you know, who are real students of history and are interested in the details, well, it would appear that the origins of the Crusades are much less black and white than Hollywood or modern day journalism or, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse uh, members uh, would like to think it is, but really, the origins of the Crusades started in this uh, this post-Muhammad um, political and social atmosphere, where after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, you have various uh, you have basically these various factions among Islam and uh, various um, warlords that started conquering um, out of the um, Arabian Peninsula, and what you have is um, first the expansion of the Patriarchal Caliphate from approximately um, 632 uh, with the death of Muhammad to about 661, where um, huge uh, swaths of territory like uh, northern Egypt, uh, northern Libya, all of modern-day Israel, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, um, uh, Jordan, almost all of Iran, parts of western Afghanistan, and I would say the southwestern, excuse me, the southeastern corner of Turkey, and all the way up to Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. And then the second, or excuse me, the third round of expansions were under the Umayyad Caliphate from 661 to approximately 750 where the expansion continues further into Pakistan, the rest of modern-day Afghanistan, into Tajikistan, and all the way over to the west, where almost all of, all of Tunisia, Algeria, most of Morocco, and all of the Iberian Peninsula are occupied. So 
again, this this all happened from 632 to 750, and um, there were various wars between the Byzantines, again the Byzantines, uh, you know, the the Latin East uh, Christian Empire, uh, fighting Seljuk troops uh, for control of Anatolia, and this was during the 1070s. Uh, I have to apologize, we're going ahead about 200 and well, excuse me, about 300 years now. There were various battles at Ankara, Antioch, and Edessa, um, Iconium, Nicaea, and of course uh, Constantinople. Now, um, the the primary, I mean, of the historical reasons why Pope Urban II in 1095 had uh, called for the Crusades was primarily, it was for three big reasons. It was to aid the Byzantine Empire in the East, to help their Christian brothers in the East. They wanted to take back the Holy Land, which had been occupied for a, a while now, and create uh, safe passages for uh, Christian pilgrims to travel there. And they also wanted to take traditionally, historically, Christian lands between um, Europe and the Holy Land. Um, a, a, a particularly, there were multiple events where, um, you know, over, I think over the course of about two centuries, there were thousands of Christian pilgrims that were just uh, massacred for no apparent reason other than they were Christians by by various tribes, and, or not by various tribes, but by various uh, caliphates and uh, various Seljuk uh, sects and um, just uh, different Islamic uh, factions, really. Now, you can't just say, well, it was all Islam. Well, there were many different uh, caliphates and various um, warring uh, caliphates within the broader term of Islam during that time that were that had different motivations for different conflicts. And um, so I think that distinction is necessary. And... Um, but, you know, again, be, because Pope Urban called for the Crusades, it was believed to have been, um, you know, oh, this is this is Christianity going on the offense now. And, you know, and and, and you know, what was their problem with uh, Islam in the first place? It's well, you know, all you have to do is just study the history of of uh, Islamic expansion out of the peninsula. And um, there are two really interesting books on this. There is The Tragedy of the Templars by Michael Haig, or Michael Hogg, and then uh, Zoe Oldenborg's The Crusades, and this was written in the 60s, but a, a long, lengthy book on the Crusades and sort of the, um, the centuries that led up to the Crusades that set up this proper historical context because, again, for the uh, – kind of for the uh, – for the anti-Christian sort of skeptical atheist group, it's that you know Christians are you know are are fanged, <laughs> you know medieval Christians are these fanged, blood-soaked creatures out for blood, and everyone else was just you know minding their own business, uh, and you know they they love they love to try and set up this simple as possible narrative to make the Catholic Church like they were out to uh, they, they are you know the historical bad guys, and so uh, without taking up too much time, I think that's a proper setup for. Uh, for the why the Crusades are a taboo to discuss. The Crusades are interesting partly because uh, it, it, it's to, sort of told as a one-sided story. Um, but before I'll, before that, I'll point out one of the problems. I think one of the features or bugs is, is as far as the Crusades are concerned, is uh, United States and Britain are both, as well as for the most part Germany, um, are all Protestant societies, and even France, since the Revolution, has been a a, a, a secular society, arguably. So it's it's somewhat anti-Catholic to begin with. So the defenders of Catholicism in the sort of you know the the, the Western Europe, United States type areas are few and far between. Um, so uh, and that goes back to sort of the um Indian episode on um, Moldbug's ultra-Calvinism theory. And in the United States and to some extent Britain were founded by well Britain less so. Britain had more of a quick revolution in that regard. Um, but the United States is clearly founded as a sort of Protestant founders, founding society. Um, people like Jefferson and uh, Franklin had no uh, interest in Catholicism. So as far as Catholicism is concerned, that's, that's one of the hidden reasons why I think um, it, it doesn't get much defense, um, because Catholicism is somewhat afterthought in the United States in that regard. Uh, interesting, as far as the, the um, Spain is concerned, um, that, that's another, you know, your, your point about offense and defense is, Something that totally gets forgotten. Um, you know, you know, you know, why are, 
Now, it's it's somewhat disputed, but I visited a place like in southern Spain. I was taking a trip to Spain two years ago, I think. I was in some of the cities, and um, you have the walled city of Velia. You have a lot of interesting, you know, artifacts from there. You know, you know why why are there walled cities, and why are there a lot of painter things like that? Well, part of them protect from other from the north, but some of them is protect from the south. Um, you know, one of the reasons that Columbus sailed the ocean blue was that you know in 1492, um, and this 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 comes from a great essay from Conrad. Bastable, anyone can get it. Um, and uh, uh, one of the reasons why Columbus sailed the ocean blue was was uh, because um, uh, Spain just got out underneath the, uh, the Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula. Um, just got a Catholic monarch, Isabella and Ferdinand, uh, finally won a ten-year war against the Nasrid dynasty of North Africa, Islamic Caliphate. Um, I mean, most of modern-day Spain has been under Muslim rule for 700 straight years. The Umayyad Caliphate. Caliphate. So for 700 years, that's a long time. That's longer than Spain has been, um, so to speak, free. And, and that, that goes back to sort of the, you know, the, you know, what did Spain do once it got underneath? It needed trade routes, it needed spices, it needed gold um, to maintain its position. So that, 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 that goes right back into the, you know, you know, you know it's, not, it's not entirely one-sided there. But I'll pass this back to Swithin. Uh, I thought that'd be an interesting comment to add. I, 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 I would agree with, with both of you. It's obvious that the, uh, the, the crusade is, is, is not just uh, Christians uh, taking it to the Muslims. I mean, it's completely ahistorical. A- um, it does relate, though, interestingly, uh, pretty much, well, at least since the 1990s, which I can talk about more clearly, um, we had an interesting thing in the West is, oh, we have Muslim terrorists. Muslim terrorists are bad. But then, uh, especially the media goes out of its way to find um, oppressed Muslim groups around the world, um, because that was something kind of like the justification for, um, I mean, partially it was, it was the Kosovan intervention because uh, Milosevic was being nasty to his Muslim population. At least that's how it was sold in the West. Uh, and then I don't, the Chinese seem to be deeply unpleasant when it comes to the Uyghurs or the Uyghurs. My my question is, well, would anybody care if they weren't Muslims, at least in the Western media? Because that seems to be uh, a common theme, uh, which, which I do think is, is just part of uh, the general. Well, we'll just support anybody who is against what we could consider um, waspish um, sort of heritage. Uh, and, and I think that's uh, that's part of it. And, and also with the Islamic expansions, I may have mentioned this before, but there were even slaves taken by the Barbary uh, pirates uh, in the county I currently live in in England. Uh, they went so far north and uh, took slaves, uh, which, of course, is never spoken about uh, at all. Um, so, yeah, TP, any other final comments on the Crusades or the issues surrounding that in general? Right. Well, um I think, uh, you know, all three of us have done a pretty good job at uh, sort of addressing uh, the Crusades as a taboo. Uh, you know, one interesting thing that I would bring up just in addition to this is there was a uh, there was a Christian traveler in the ninth century, a guy known as Bernard the Monk or Bernard the Pilgrim. And, you know, he traveled all throughout the Mediterranean world, of, you know, France, Italy, much of the Levant, uh, Egypt. Tunisia and so on and so forth and of course you know this is bias coming from a, from a uh, Christian from the Middle Ages but uh, you know he described sort of the you know just in a sort of quasi proto uh, sociological sort of way he was observing just sort of the atmospheres of different societies and that um, the you know he, he just noticed you know the different warring and sort of the the violent uh, just the violent uh, conflicts going on in the Middle East and in places like modern-day Syria and Damascus and Tyre and Gaza that, uh, you know, that those areas were still under, um, you know, a lot of cities were trading hands between um, uh, uh, warring uh, Islamic groups that were, there was a, a lot of infighting. A lot of people don't discuss this, but, you know, after... Uh, uh, Muhammad died, there was a lot of infighting, and that sort of um, manifested into various, uh, you know, conquering uh, conquering campaigns that led uh, north and west from the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, 
where um, you know there were many massacres in Jerusalem, uh, in Damascus, and a lot of these you know, tr- you know historically uh, pl- uh, cities that you know were built by the Phoenicians centuries earlier, and whereas at least uh, Christian societies, while they were you know at that time quite clearly very um, strictly Catholic, at least there was a a higher degree of peace within those territories now. That's not again. I'm not trying to sneak in that you know Christianity is more peaceful than Islam, you know, especially during that time. But there was, uh, you know, I mean, this was this was just a uh, this was a difficult time because you know Islam was um, splitting between uh, Shiite and Sunni, and you have just a lot of infighting, and so. Um, you know, even there, there are you know Muslim populations uh, in the Balkans, for example, that fled the Middle East because of this, and they, you know, they, they, there was many Muslim settlers in the Balkans and like in northern Greece sometime around in the 11th century. So that's just kind of interesting to observe that. But yeah, it's uh, it's not just the Christians, uh, you know, taking it to the Muslims, as you said, Swithin. It's uh, you know, it, it's a, it's uh, you know, it takes two to play ball. And when you look at uh, just the early history of the Umayyad Caliphate, I mean, it's just an unfortunate uh, chapter of bloodshed in human history. And um, Again, many one of the main motivations again for the Crusades was that you know many Christian pilgrims were being slaughtered, uh, you know, and just outright massacred. And so, well, of course, you know, the medieval Catholic Church is going to do something about that. And this was just simply an age of warfare. So people, you know, when you have the complete historical contextual package together, it shouldn't be surprising that something like the Crusades uh, had manifested. Zizak, uh, interestingly, it, it once said that um. You know, he's a, a Christian atheist, um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's entirely true. And Marx himself is quite interesting. Um, you know, if you look at the way the Marxists treat um, 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 uh, rebelling, um, you know, if you look at the way the Marxists treat um, indigenous groups, it's, it's not it's not particularly well. Um, and this goes back to Swithin's point about the the uh, Muslims in China currently. Um, so so as far as as far as groups going out and um, as far as groups going out and attacking um, or ruling Muslims. Um, in some ways, the, the non-taboo group uh, currently, uh, well, in some ways it's a taboo because they don't want you to talk. Well, maybe it is a taboo, um, but that goes back to Swithin's point, you know, why doesn't anyone care about the, uh, you, know, you know, why doesn't Disney care about the Ugars? Um, no one, I think it's their name. Peter Hitchens has a great like, 5,000 word essay on his travels through there um, in the old city out there. Um, so yeah, it, it is it is quite interesting that the um, uh, in some ways that and that that tension has continued. But this I think goes back to the sort of uh, the, you know that the, the, uh, it is kind of a universalist thing. Um, Christianity is more universalist, but Islam is also universalist too. So it is it is the intersection of the two great universalist religions um, in the region, uh, uh, and that is and, and that boundary is basically. The boundary between them, um, um, uh, boundary between Europe and Asia, boundary between um, uh, Europe and North Africa, um, and actually in a place like Egypt, you have these sort of leftover um, groups and sort of the, the Syrian Christians, another group that was recently, you know, had a heck of a lot of problems um, um, uh, in recent years too. So that is the intersection. So I think this would fall right into our next question, um, Swithin. So if you want to take it, um, that'd be great. So, TP, to possibly one of the most juicy ones that you can go for, is the uh, uh, U.S.-Israel relationship. Uh, What is in particular taboo uh, about it? And again, what does it say about the current uh, uh, U.S. media or the the U.S. cathedral in Moldbuggian terms? Right. Well, yeah, this is certainly a juicy one. Right. Well, you know, any uh, I think, you know, anyone who casually studies U.S. politics or even the history of the 20th century in the West, um, you know, again, from a U.S. perspective, especially from the 1960s up until the present day, one thing that is quite present within U.S. politics is 
either the the broad majority support or just the um, basically ubiquitous support uh, for Israel, Israeli uh, foreign policy, Israeli um, domestic policy, so on and so forth. I mean, it's uh, it it's self-evident to simply point out that the United States and Israel uh, have uh, are, are bound very tightly at different uh, political, social, and institutional levels. And um, one thing that is interesting about this is just the nearly mythical amounts of money and technology that has been poured into Israel from the United States since the 1960s. And um, Again, this is one of the great taboos where, uh, you know, I mean, if you, when you look across sort of the interesting histories of the Democratic and Republican parties, they might uh, put on this show for the media and for the public how they viscerally disagree on this issue or that issue. One thing that almost seems, uh, you know, just uh, that, that's not up for discussion is is just 110% uh, support for Israel, whatever that means. You know, that, that, that it's almost like uh, it's just it's one of the great American political tropes of the 20th and 21st century. You know, Israel is our greatest ally. Diversity is our greatest strength. Uh, X Y Z, fill in the blank. But that is uh, that that is one of the that's one of the most popular political slogans in the United States. And um, it's interesting because. Uh, there is a very interesting three-part documentary from Al Jazeera called uh, The Lobby. And one of the interesting things about this documentary is it basically details just how, um, how deeply the, uh, the, um, that Israeli, um, how would you say, uh, uh, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and, and interest groups influence U.S. policy, specifically U.S. foreign policy. Now, um, uh, the, a, a great example of this that not many people know about is that, and and uh, there's a guy named Ryan Dawson who's done a lot of good research on this. That's uh, that has documentaries on these details, but there is something uh, in the Pentagon in the early 2000s and the late 1990s known as the Office of Special Operations, I believe, or the Office of Special Projects. It's one of those two, where um, a, a former U.S. Army general, uh, I think it was Wesley Clark, basically uh, kind of rang the alarm bell somewhat, and he said, you know, well, why are we going into all these countries? And basically, this is something that, uh, you know, places like uh, Iraq, Iran, Libya, Syria, and Jordan, and, and a few other places, uh, even like, you know, like secondary or tertiary locations like Somalia, the Somalian coast. And these, this was more or less, uh, you know, th this this U.S. sort of um, either invading these places outright and replacing them with U.S. and Israeli-friendly governments came from uh, neocon think tanks and Israeli uh, uh, interest groups and uh, and lobbying groups, especially uh, APAC, the American Israeli Political Action Committee. Now. Um, I happen to agree with Ryan Dawson that you know if you think the Bilderberg Group has wields a great deal of influence, well, take a moment to just reflect on the uh, on the uh, the power that APAC has on American politics. I mean, when you look at APAC's annual meeting, I mean, it's basically this like almost this mega church atmosphere of both Democrats and Republicans getting up and just basically bearing their testimony how. You know, apparently the United States couldn't breathe oxygen without our relationship with Israel, and uh, and any and you know to kind of wrap a bow around this point, um, if you know if anyone you know anywhere within U.S. society, especially American politics around the institutional level, dares to question the uh, or criticize the relationship between the United States and Israel as something that could potentially be parasitic or disadvantageous well then you're you're not only uh, wrong I mean you're potentially you know an anti-semite you are you know you you, uh, you have this sort of ethnic hatred of, of Jews as people and so and all they have to do is invoke uh, the events of World War II and uh, and sort of these, you know, the centuries-long um, 
sort of uh, anti-Semitic beliefs that have been uh, pressed against Jewish people for centuries. And so, and that's just a quick way of ending the conversation. And the just as a last point um, with this U.S. and Israeli uh, relation, political uh, relationship, you had something called the uh, BDS or the uh, uh, divestment uh, boycott, divestment, and sanction movement against Israel where um, it was an attempt by different university groups and a few institutions to suggest or to push for the idea that we should sanction or boycott Israeli products coming into the United States as a way of deterring um, the harsh Israeli treatment of uh, Palestine and, and Palestinian the Palestinian occupation. And what happened from there is that there were even several laws passed in a few in a few uh, U.S. states where if you if your business ended up supporting uh, BDS, well, you could uh, potentially be fined or you may not be the beneficiary of certain insurances like home insurance. So this is really getting uh, this is really encroaching on the legal territory now. So, you know, the First Amendment exists, you know, apparently just as long as you don't uh, support um uh, divestment or boycotting or sanctioning uh, certain Israeli companies or or Israel as a political entity. So yeah, quite a juicy one. <laughs> uh, I'm going to follow up on this and see if, if you have any further comments, CP. I'm I'm somewhat agnostic on 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 Israel uh, uh, in the sense that I've been to Israel. Israel is probably one of those wealthiest countries per capita. Its GDP I don't think fully tells the picture of how wealthy. I mean I, I'm not saying I'm saying this in a positive way. I mean Ben Gurion is and his band of 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 I mean, it has a lot of similarities to sort of the American Revolution, uh, the sort of Six Day War in 1948. It's really it, it is a quite an interesting. I mean, they use you know old they sort of rounded up old Luftwaffe planes and sort of um, you know uh, took a sort of uh, very in the same way with the um, that's the 48 day the 48 war and the um, 67 war um, and the 73 war. I mean, they did really pull off a quite amazing series of of military and political victories, um, um, and they're sort of they had sort of sort of communist um, type elements in there. They had sort of communist utopian type elements in there too. Um, so so Israel itself is kind of a very interesting society. In some way, it is the you know 52nd or 51st state of the United States in a certain in a certain sense. But as far as the military relationship is concerned, uh, one of the things the defenders will point out is the United States sends a lot of money to everyone. Like sends money to Egypt, it sends money. Uh, Turkey, and you know, you know, this, this is this is the, I'd say the, the the criticism. Now I'm all, I'm all for I'm all for talking about it. I'm I'm personally agnostic about it. But but what's further interesting is like, um, you know, it, you know, you have the sort of Palestine type thing, where you know, this is where it gets really interesting. You have people like Garen Brooks, you know, it, it gets it gets sort of it, it it really is a third rail in the sense that there's no clear there's no clear group. To get behind, because if you get if you get behind if, if you if you start defending the Palestinians, um, then the mainstream might attack you for being um, um, an anti-Semite. If you get behind Israel too much, then they'll attack you for being like a messianic or what or whatever. Or, or you know, so there is no way. There's no there's no easy way out. So I think this relates to the first point I, I made that sometimes taboos exist. They have to exist. I would say Israel to a certain extent fawns out pawns out our you know the far east border of the U.S. empire. Uh, um, you know, if you think about NATO, uh, NATO technically, you know, it, does it end in Turkey or not? Um, no, I mean Turkey's not Turkey's not in NATO, but um, you know, does it end in Ukraine or does it end in Poland? Of course, Ukraine is in Poland. Is um, but Israel, in certain ways, is you know the far east border possibly of the, you know, the United States. And if Japan would be in Japan and South Korea are the western borders of the U.S. empire. Um, uh, so Israel, in certain ways, is a sort of, you know, an American airbase in a very terrible neighborhood, so to speak. So, so I'm, I'm personally agnostic about it. You know, I, I don't, I don't care. What, what? Do you have any comments on that, TP? Right. No, that's fine. I'm, you know, and I have, I have a few friends from Israel, and I, I did some study abroad in Germany in the summer of 2013, and. You know, I met people from, I mean, everywhere, Southeast Asia, all over Europe, Central and South America and Israel. And, uh, you know, even just, uh, you know, 
I, I completely agree with you that uh, just societally and even ethnically speaking, I mean, Israel is a really fascinating place just given how much history has occurred there over the last, I mean, oh, heck, like 3,000 years. And, you know, if, if um, like when Israelis take like a 23andMe or my ancestry uh, sort of genetic test, well, they're just all over the place. Like, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever taken a genetic test, but I mean, I'm mostly northern european and and from british isles and some southern european but i mean uh when well it's very typical for um modern day israelis to have uh genetic roots from all over north africa all over europe central asia um so, uh you know the arabian peninsula so and you can kind of um I mean, I imagine that when you went to Israel, you, that's almost just something that's observable, just this like really fascinating admixture of Mediterranean peoples. So, yeah, I mean, I don't have this uh, – I mean, I'm not someone who just thinks like, you know, we must destroy Israel and sort of this like finger-pointing uh, <laughs> sort of uh, – uh, what would you say, some some type of like paramilitary sort of way? I, of course, I'm fine with Israel existing. It's just that, uh, and and again, I, I'm it's fine to maintain an agnostic position on that. It's just that uh, you know when you uh, when you kind of take a survey of the various ways in which uh, Israel has influenced U.S. foreign policy. Well, as you mentioned earlier, Tim, uh, you know we pay. I think we pay Egypt something quite so – we pay them a quite a steep amount of money per year just to keep – just to prevent them from attacking Israel. And then both public and private money that is poured into Israel uh, yearly is something in the tens of billions, and that's been happening for decades now at varying, you know, uh, at varying amounts. But, um, but yeah, of course, uh, I, yeah, I um, – it, it's just more the, the elite – institutional upper political relationship that I and many other people have a problem with it. Um, yeah, it, it's very, uh, you know, I mean, even like Israel at one point, I think in the early, I, sometime around 2010 through a, uh, through a long series of, um, it was like, uh, it, it was almost like a, a quasi Nuremberg sort of way, they basically pressured Germany into paying for a nuclear-powered submarine for Israel on on the German people's tab. So, you know that that's a that's an interesting thing. But uh, I mean, that's just one anecdotal example to to basically display the power uh, that Israeli political influences can have on any country. And it's, but you know, this is also something that's certainly true for Great Britain. Probably not to quite the extent of the United States, but certainly in the city of England, there is this concentration of Israeli uh, political influence within uh, the UK. Um, but yeah, I, um, I yeah, sorry, Swithin, I don't want to keep you out of the conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll hand it over to you, sir. Uh, no, you, no, you're, you're 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 right in respect to England. Uh, there's a lot of Jews uh, around Manchester and, and certain parts of London. Uh, they pitched over in the late 19th century, if if I remember correctly. But as in the, uh, to get close to the end, uh, what I think is interesting about Israel is uh, Israel is basically an ethno state. Uh, yet uh, cannot be criticised uh, very heavily at all without invoking anti-Semitism, uh, which is somewhat ironic as well, considering uh, a lot of the most orthodox Jews actually think the nation-state of Israel is actually illegitimate. Uh, the Maharadi, uh, I can't remember the exact name, uh, believe that the uh, nation-state of Israel should only be brought by the Messiah, and since he clearly isn't here yet, it shouldn't exist. Um so it's a very contradictory uh, taboo um, uh, to, to hold. Um, I, I, I think it is uh, with Israel. It is, it is a strange uh, position uh, for them. Uh, so uh, TP, I think we should uh, we get into the end now. Have you got any final comments on any of the issues we've touched so far or any concluding comments on uh, taboos in general? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think what you just barely said, Swithin, is a good point. Uh, yeah. I think for all intents and purposes, you know, e even working with the definition loosely, uh, Israel is certainly an ethno state, but it gets to sort of have, you know, because of earlier events in the 20th century, um, you know, they sort of get to argue on behalf of Israel as if it were not an ethno state. And that's one of the things that's, uh, that's frustrating. Uh, you know, I, you know, Regardless of what uh, one would think of the far right, um, 
typically the nation of Japan is invoked in arguments in preference for a homogeneous society and you know Israel and Japan have a lot in common in that regard in, in sort of this ethnic uh, homogeneity and so um, yeah that that's just like that's just something that's very frustrating so it, it should you know we should be able to criticize and, and to examine certain parasitic uh, uh, aspects of the relationship between the United States and Israel. Of course, it's fine to be Jewish or to be Israeli. It's even okay to be a Jewish elite. But uh, what is not okay is sort of this uh, this continued, um, uninterrupted um, relationship between the United States and Israel, where you know basically we uh, we we have been getting rid of a lot of different uh, Middle Eastern. Regimes like Gaddafi and Hussein, and we have been, you know, diminishing the influence of um, of uh, Syria, uh, largely at the behest of Israeli foreign policy. Now, um, I'll just say real quickly that uh, I think it was in 2004 or five or six. I apologize if I get the year wrong, but there was a conflict in southern Lebanon between the uh, the Israeli defense forces and um, Hezbollah. And one thing that was interesting there, this is just sort of a fascinating piece of military history, is that while Israel has its own very robust tech sector and a very robust military, they don't have the numbers. Uh, you know, in, in a sort of a uh, interestingly ironic way, uh, uh, Todd Lewis, uh, you know, who goes by Praise of Folly on YouTube, he and I have discussed this in private a lot where Israel is not like the Soviet Union in that they can trade land for time. They have to be very much like Germany in the sense that they there is no time to waste and there's no buffer zones anywhere. They have to strike at the most um, uh, at the most critical targets, uh, and it all has to happen within several hours. You know, the the air force has to strike ammo and fuel depots just at the right time, and artillery has to be hitting just the right um you know just the right columns and convoys at just the right amount of time, and if not. A lot of casualties are suffered, and what happened was is that there was basically a very costly stalemate for the Israeli forces now, um, and that was with uh, sort of like a minimal level of U.S. intelligence support. So um, again, yeah, it, it, it's it's fine to be uh, you know, and it's even fine if your preference is pro uh, pro Israeli, but one thing that needs to be uh, you know, declared safely again without losing your job, without losing your reputation, is that it's okay to criticize Israeli uh, influence on American institutions and government. And you know, it doesn't mean that you're an anti-Semitic person. It's not, you know, you know, rarely things are that black and white, and that certainly applies uh, to this uh, to this subject as well. But without <laughs> carrying on too much longer. Uh, Thanks, Tim and Swithin, for having me. I really like your guys' show. I'm a lifelong fan, and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, TP. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, uh, now, just, I'd now just like to thank everyone for listening. If you've uh, liked this show, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on YouTube and Podbean. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the rankings, and the more people uh, can enjoy the show. And, and if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, Please contact us at mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.